Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Skip. And I'm Kate, and we are very excited to have John Yu joining us here today. John Yu is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley, where he has been on the faculty since 1993. You received his BA, Summa Cum Laude, in American History from Harvard University. He received his JD from Yale Law School, where he worked at the Yale Law Journal. Professor Yu clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas of the U.S. Supreme Court and Judge Lawrence H. Silverman of the U.S. Court of Appeals of the D.C. Circuit. From 2001 to 2003, he served as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice, where he worked on issues involving foreign affairs, national security, and the separation of powers. Thank you so much for joining us, John. It's my pleasure, although I take issue with the name of the podcast, which I didn't know. There's no such thing as free food or free anything. Uh, <laughs> everything costs. True conservative. Some, there's trade-offs in life for everything. Very nice. Um, so one of the questions we like to ask our guests is to talk about this concept of inflection points or a point where they had to pivot, uh, be it in their personal or uh, in their career. Um, can you share a, mo a moment uh, or two with us? Uh, so I'm not really sure what an inflection point is I guess uh, you mean like points in your life where you have to make an important decision that you think changes the course of what you're going to yeah. do, I guess. So uh, I think going out to teach at Berkeley is probably the most important one because I'm uh, an East Coaster. I grew up in Philadelphia and went to school on the East Coast and never spent more than a few days in California uh, before in my life, mostly as a teenager visiting relatives. So moving all the way out to Berkeley uh, was a big change and uh, also joining a, uh, you know, one of the country's best public research universities was a, a big challenge. And teaching was a, also a big challenge. I was only 25 years old, I think, when I was hired and I started teaching when I was 26. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, a lot of uh, responsibility for a young person at the time. And so that was, I guess that's, yeah, to me would be my and then the other one, I guess, would be getting married, I suppose, is a big inflection point in anybody's life. Um, but I think you have in mind professional inflection points, not personal ones. So, yeah, going and deciding to be a professor instead of a practicing lawyer would be the most important one. Excellent. So what got you interested in law to begin with and mm -hmm. what? why was it so much that you decided not to go the route of being a practicing lawyer? Well, law and being the uh, practicing attorney are different things. And I think uh, I thought about becoming a journalist for quite some time, and I worked on my college newspaper, which was uh, the Harvard Crimson. That's where I met my wife. She actually became a journalist, and she was from a family of journalists. And I ended up actually working as a newspaper reporter for a little bit. But in the end, I thought I wanted to uh, spend my career not uh, watching other people do things, but to try to do things myself. Uh, although... I don't know, being a professor, or maybe I am just watching other people do things too. But that's why I went to law because I think law, uh, and probably you all in the law, that, I know a lot of people at CMC go on to law school and business school. Uh, that's what's famous for. Um, think about uh, a way to combine uh, the ideas you learn on campus with the real world. And so it seemed to me, and I think it's true, that uh, law allows you to uh, still keep a keep a connection with the great ideas and debates that you talk about and wrestle with in college, uh, and uh, at the same time play uh, uh, you know play a, a productive role in society. Um, I think sometimes a lot of the other kinds of things you can do in life, you just 
lose touch or you just don't think about some of the big issues anymore because you're more focused on uh, making a profit in the bottom line or um, advancing your career in some organization. But I think in law, you still have a connection to the the great debates and the great ideas that you still, uh, you know, first introduced to in college. So you, uh, one of the things in your, your resume, you, you worked uh, for Justice Clarence Thomas, you clerked for him. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how that, that shaped maybe your personal views and, and also your career? So, uh, you know, it's, I, it's hard for me to disentangle, I guess, uh, which I, you know, how it affected my ideas. It definitely did, but I couldn't tell you exactly how, because it's such a clerking at the Supreme Court at a young age when you're uh, helping, you know, one of the nine uh, people who decides what finally for the judiciary, what the law is in our country is a really daunting task. And so you do come out of it different than when you went into it. Um, I suppose the most important thing about clerking for him uh, on a professional level is I really left me uh, with uh, the idea of how important was that judges constrain their role, that they try not to become uh, sort of philosopher kings who think it's their job to make and remake society as they see fit, but that uh, the job of a judge is a much more narrow one in our democracy. Uh, at the same time, what I saw at the Supreme Court, this is not because of clerking for Justice Thomas, but just clerking at the Supreme Court, I saw how much people in society, litigants, everyone wants the Supreme Court to be a philosopher king and settle all of our hardest questions mm -hmm. for us. But I came away from my time at the court thinking that is not the Supreme Court's role. And I think it would be better for our country if we decide more questions democratically. Wonderful. So you have also written a lot and done a lot on war powers and executive mm -hmm. powers. And it strikes mm -hmm. me that in all of those conversations, you seem to need to have a basic underlying belief and definition of what war is, mm -hmm. which is, in my mind, a lot harder to harder to define than it might immediately seem. So I'm curious, what is your personal definition and conception of what exactly war is? So, you know, first off, uh, whatever if my personal view is I'm trying to figure out what the framers mm -hmm. thought war was or what they thought hostilities were. And I think uh, certainly whenever we uh, launch attacks that kill uh, government officials, citizens, or members of the armed forces of another sovereign nation, that's definitely war. Uh, so, uh, you know, in recent years, uh, administrations have tried to claim, well, if we drop bombs on Libya, or Syria from the air, and there's no ground troops involved, that's not war. I think that's just that's just a fallacy. I think that's just ridiculous, in fact. Um, I think if, for example, if we tried to kill the head of state of another country, like Libya with Gaddafi or Hussein, Saddam Hussein with Iraq, and we do it from the air, well, it doesn't matter if it's from the air or the ground, it's still trying to kill the head of state of another country is war. So I think that these uh, efforts to you know, dance away from what's a war have been uh, really misguided and have twisted the constitutional text. That said, um, I think uh, I think most uh, or many law professors think that when you have war, Congress has to give its permission first. And so that's why they tie themselves into knots, because they're trying to say, well, when Obama bombed Libya or Trump just bombed Syria, in neither case did the president get congressional permission beforehand. And they don't want to say the wars are unconstitutional. So what they want to say is, oh, well, these are just not war. 
My view is that the president can use force abroad without Congress's permission. So I don't have a problem saying they're war. And my solution is if Congress disagrees, they have plenty of ways to stop the president if they choose to use them. They just choose not to. Right. So, so you mentioned that. Um, and, and in a lot of, a lot of cases, it's, it, it might not be as politically viable to be that check because um, obviously you know, the, the, the Congress has the power to raise armies. Um, the Congress has the power to declare war. Um, but maybe you know, with support of our troops and, and, hope, and wanting to make sure that our troops are well taken care of, well funded, well supplied, um, cutting off funding for, for troops is just a politically hard thing to do for Congress. How do you see that? Do you see that as maybe a weakening of a, of a, of a constitutional check? Well, so I agree with what you say. But first, I think that just because something is politically hard doesn't mean we have to rewrite the Constitution or our understanding to fix it. Right. So that's one thing. Second thing is historically, uh, when Congress has wanted to draw down or end wars, they have had no problem doing so. So the Mexican-American War, uh, you know, we end our occupation of Mexico because Congress cut off funds. Uh, most famously, Vietnam. Right. The Vietnam War ended because of a funding cutoff. Uh, if uh, Congress wanted us to draw down in Iraq, it can still do it in a way that makes sure our troops have enough of what they need, but not enough to conduct the maybe offensive, aggressive operations that a, a disagreeing president might want. So I think it's really that Congress, individual members of Congress, they don't want to use the power, but the power is there. Um, that doesn't mean that because members of Congress are politically reluctant that we have to therefore decrease presidential power. And then the question is, well, how much are you going to decrease it? How do we know what the right amount of power is to bring things into a, some kind of balance? I can't tell you what the proper balance is. And it may change from year to year. All they can tell you is what the you know the Constitution to me seems to set up a system where uh, the branches have a lot of powerful tools at their disposal to use against each other if they really want to. I would say instead, what you see is members of Congress um, like to see the president take all the responsibility for the tough decisions in war, and so they're going to fund. Uh, the military, maybe even if they don't agree with it, because they don't want to have to take responsibility for it. But that's their choice. That's a really fair answer. Um, I would like to pivot now. So you have been kind of controversial for the quote unquote torture memos. So I am very curious in your mind, how much can we interrogate at people and not be considered torture? Like what exactly is the line there? Because the line of up to pain that is similar to death or organ failure seems to me like there's a lot of things that could still be considered torture that fall underneath that. So how do we demarcate this? So one thing is that we or every individual might have their own opinion about what constitutes torture. And uh, however, Congress passed a law that defined what torture was. And it was vague. I mean, does, for example, if you go look at the law, it doesn't have a list of things that you can and can't do. It just said you, the government can't subject someone to, uh, cannot specifically intend to subject someone to what's called severe physical or mental pain and suffering. And that was it. So uh, the job of the Justice Department lawyer uh, at the time was to figure out, well, what does this vague statute mean in terms of what the CIA uh, wants to do with uh, two or three al-Qaeda leaders? So there's a list of interrogation methods that they proposed. 
Um, some of them we said were beyond this line. Uh, some we said were short of the line. Um, you know, these things are th uh, things which are not pleasant, but we didn't think cross the line into this severe physical or mental pain or suffering. So the one that a lot of people have various views on is waterboarding. To me, that was almost exactly on the line because uh, it doesn't seem, at the time, we believed it doesn't cause any long-term pain or suffering. Uh, in fact, we use it on our own troops and officers to train them. Uh, so when we looked at this question in the Justice Department and we got the facts of how often people had used this in the Defense Department, we found that there had been over 20,000 uh, military officers who'd been subjected to waterboarding and there were no cases of long-term harm. And so to us, that's very close to the definition in the statute, but we didn't think cross the line. Um, I don't see how else you could do it, actually. I mean, I think if you were to say uh, as a lawyer, well, I know what it means without having to look at any of this other, th uh, other evidence, I think that's a case where sometimes lawyers confuse what they think is moral versus what the law says. And, so, and those are different things. Uh, you can, for example, you could be a lawyer and think that the death penalty is immoral. You know, that the, you, should, you could say, I don't think the government should ever put anyone to death. But you might live in a state like California where the death penalty is constitutional and legal. And you can't say as a lawyer, well, I think it's illegal just because you disagree with it if the law of the state you're in has authorized it. I think that's the same issue you come across with this question, but I think a lot of people have problems with it because they want their legal answer to be the same thing as their moral view. And that's not always the same. So you mentioned this, and we, we actually question about this, your, your, the tension maybe between personal morals and, and your duty to act in the interest of the state. And, and reconciling that for you personally, have you ever encountered some of that tension? Obviously, you know, scandals with Abu Ghraib and, and Guantanamo and, and things like this. Did, did that ever impact I, you at all? I or? mean, uh, you know, usually lawyers and the government don't run across this very often. But the 9-11 attacks, I think, uh, caused us to confront it a lot. And the reason why is because the 9-11 attacks were a different kind of war. We had an enemy for the first time that wasn't a nation. And we had an enemy that refused to play by any rules. And so we had to consider uh, fighting a group for the first time with tactics and strategies we've never thought of or had to use before. Um, the, so it would, of course, raise moral and legal issues. I think if you're a lawyer, or even any official, you don't have to be a lawyer, um, if you're in the government and you do not want to carry out uh, an order of the government or you think the government's asking you to do something that's really immoral, then you have to re you should resign. I mean, that's the only way out of it, I think. I think you have to say, I'm not going to carry out the order, but that doesn't mean I'm going to use the powers of my office to stop the government that was legitimately elected from exercising his authority, you just say, I will not participate in it. So I think that's how you solve that tension. Thank you very much for that. So unfortunately, we're almost out of time. And the question we always like to end on is, what is your personal definition of success? And how do you do, how, what advice would you give to students to define success for themselves? <laughs> so I was thinking about this. I don't really have a personal definition of success. 
On the other hand, I'm not one of the people who thinks just do what makes you happy because I think that's a bunch of baloney. <laughs> so I think, you know, I I think our uh, society actually, maybe one of the great things about our society is that we have lots of different definitions of success. You know, we happen to have a person who's the president now who seems to define success based on how much money you accumulate in your lifetime. Um, that's not my definition of success. But on the other hand, I wouldn't say that if you're happy being a beach bum, that you should go be a beach bum and that's successful. I would really just, I would disagree with that. But I don't really have any sort of external definition of what uh, success should be. But I do think that students, the only thing I would, I guess I would say to students in terms of this question is that it may be hard to think of it this way now while you're in school. But if you, you you're going to realize later that this is the last time in your life where you have the unrestricted ability to debate and think about uh, ideas for their own sake. And once you leave school, everything else becomes more um, instrumental, making a living or you know, whatever, getting a certain kind of job or pursuing a certain kind of career. And uh, you have very limited time, actually, where you don't have to worry about that so much. You can really think and debate about what Aristotle said, for example, or you know Tocqueville or whoever that you're interested in. And that that's maybe that's a, I wouldn't say that's success, but that's what I would do if I were a student now. I mean, your position now, I would take advantage, full advantage uh, of that and worry a little bit less about uh, what career or job future you're going to have, because that will all resolve itself after you graduate. But this time that you're in now is really going to end soon and you won't ever have an opportunity to do it again. All right. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, John, again for joining us and all of our listeners. Remember to stay hungry.